Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jess to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jess and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jess called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And then he said, Neither the Lord has chosen this one. Then Jess made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jess made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jess, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jess, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jess, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Good, good morning, my way people. Another week, September 27th. Good to have you here this morning. Uh, people that are really close by and people that are far away as well. We are in the third installment this week for our fall series. where We've called it For One Another. Uh, it's about a community that loves itself or loves each other well. And our key idea that governs our entire series comes from John 13:35, And Jesus says this, he says, you know, other people, other people will know, they will know that you follow me when they see what? When they see all of us love each other well, when they see us love each other. We have a companion book for our series that our neighborhood groups are going through. And if you're not a part of a neighborhood group, uh, try to get in touch with me or Becca and we'll put you in one. And it's a book by Ed Welch called Caring for One Another. And it covers uh, eight qualities that Jesus develops in and among his people by and through his spirit. So if I were to encapsulate one word about today, what we're going to cover today, it's curiosity, curiosity, uh, moving towards one another in curiosity. Uh, I, I like to do this so that 
it remains clear for everyone throughout our teaching. But a good one-sentence summary of today's teaching, I'll even repeat it later, is a caring community has curiosity for one another because as image bearers of God, we all contain wonders that others have yet to see. So the teaching, let's move into our teaching time. We don't see, we do not see things as God sees them. If, if we saw what God sees, we would, we would, I promise you, we would treat others differently. Uh, this narrative that Anderson read for us this morning is a great sample. And what I mean by sample is that it is consistent with hundreds of other scriptures that get to this point. God sees the heart and he sees way past the externals and, and, and rarely is it, rarely is it that anyone else sees what God sees. Uh, this was nestled there in the narrative talking about Samuel's selection and anointing of David. There is a verse nestled in the middle of 1 Samuel 16 in chapter 7. It says, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We see this. What we saw and read had read for us was Samuel looking at Jesse's older sons and other sons and then finally landing on David. We see... This is consistent with other scriptures. Um, we see Moses. Uh, we see this. We see Moses as a stuttering hothead who escapes his problems. And God sees the leader of my people to pull them out of bondage. We see Jacob. He's a, he, he is just a rat. He's a slimy, whiny liar. Uh, and, and God calls him Israel. God calls him Israel. We see Rahab. We see Rahab as a, a, a practitioner of the oldest small business in the world. And God sees her faith and double thumbs up it. Uh, we see Hagar bossed around, powerless, a nobody really. And God sees her and blesses her. Uh, no one wants Leah. No one wants Leah. She's ugly compared to Rachel. And God sees her as the matriarch of his son. Right? We don't, we don't think much of Gideon and his 300, but God sees his power made evident through them. Right? The people, what do the people want? The people want Saul. They want Saul as king. That's what they want. Uh, they want Saul with his flowing hair and his rock hard abs and his height. A tall guy, good looking, that muscles, flashy armor, and God sees a spineless wimp. The people see beautiful, strong, good looking, and God sees a spineless wimp with no character. When Anderson read that for us this morning, it, it's instructed to see something about that narrative is that Samuel doesn't think much of David either. Right? He sees Jesse's uh, oldest son and says, This has got to be the guy. This has got to be the guy. Uh, no, that is not the one. And then, and then he sees the second son. He goes, "Okay, this specimen has got to be it. 
That's the next king. Uh, no, it's not. So they go on and they finally reach David. Uh, this is instructive for us is don't think prophets, men of God, women of God, people of God, don't think that we get this instinctively either. If Samuel the prophet doesn't know, he himself doesn't see as God sees by default. So we see this. There's a few couple points I want to make here. Is God sees beauty. When he looks at you and he looks at me, when he looks at people, he sees beauty. And what I mean by that, he sees the image of himself in humanity. So God sees beauty. But he also sees this. He sees brokenness. He sees sin and the effects of sin. He sees beauty and he sees brokenness. And then he goes beyond all of that externals and he sees the heart. Now, this is going to be a really good challenge for a, a couple of types of people listening to me and listening to this this morning. Is um, You might have person A, and person A is a, a, a person who loves to notice the, the positive things in people. And, and rarely, if ever, will they ever want to talk about the flaws in themselves or in other people. They're very positive people. And then you have type B, and you might be a person who has great skill in pointing out the deficiencies of your fellow man, right? Error spotting comes easily to you. And and if anyone says anything nice about a certain person, you always qualify and you say, yeah, yeah, I see that, but isn't it sad they drink too much? So you're, you're very good at seeing the deficiencies. So if you're a person this morning who, who says, we need to see the positive, we need to affirm the goodness in each other, and, 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 and whenever we look out in the world, we just need to praise whatever's good in people, and we need to build self-esteem, and we need to build body images, and, and, and we need to notice the incredible things that's happening in and through each human and we never want to dismiss anybody. And every life has inestimable value. I said inestimable wrong. <laughs> right? And so, so this person who is super positive, they'd say, um, look at Bob. Bob is a stand-in name here. So don't feel offended if your name is Bob. L- look at Bob. And Bob might be impatient and awkward and, and, and says the wrong thing at the wrong time. And Bob can't really read a room. But but positive person will say, look, look, I've noticed Bob is such an amazing encourager. Um, but if someone comes along and says, hey, look, there's real brokenness there in Bob, you might not want to hear that. Yeah, or even think comments like that. Are even helpful. In fact, you probably think they're uh, destructive, degrading, and defeating talk. Like it might even be the reason why Bob may have those problems is because negative people are always pointing out those problems. Now, now you might be this other person, that type B person, right, who has great skill in pointing out deficiencies, and your spiritual gift is to show people all of their flaws, and you can see sin and all of its consequences, like it's the matrix, and it's just slow motion, and you see right through people and all their bad motivations, and you're not buying all this uh, positivism, and you see reality, you see things how they are, and it's really messed up, and we need someone like you to call it out in everybody, and we need to get all of that 
ick in people out into the light, and we need to deal with it, and we need a discipline, and we need to keep fighting all the errors that are sure to crop up and pop up. And if anyone tells you, look, Bob is a good guy. He's a really good encourager. All you can see is depravity. And Bob's only encouraging people because of his radical neediness for outside approval. And he needs to understand his sin and his brokenness and his idolatry. And you know what? Bob actually needs to repent of all of his fake encouraging. So, I want you to see something. Uh, Do you see that both people are operating from an incomplete scriptural and spiritual reality? Each person only wants 50% of the Bible's teaching where it matches their own personal emphases. Right? Both types of people, A, B, both types of people need to hold both ideas as true. Bob is an amazing image bearer of our universal God. Two, Bob has deep brokenness that needs redemption and healing by our universal God. Now, how can we hold on to both of those ideas about persons and humanity? Because because each person, if you're type A or type B, each person thinks that they're giving up a very important point. How do I think Bob is a wonderful, beautiful person and also challenge him in his brokenness? How, how do I appropriately see that, that, that Bob definitely needs a savior while affirming his innate value? How do you do that? So I, I want you to see how the cross, what we call the good news and the good person and work of Jesus, reconciles something that we don't think really can be reconciled. Because the cross is a reconciler of ideas and philosophies and uh, strategies and relationships. You name it. The cross reconciles so much. How is that so? I've said this a few times lately, so some of you might even be bored. But number one, the cross looks at Bob and tells Bob this. Whoa. Bob, dude, you are so perverted. You are so whacked. Bob, dude, you are so fractured. You are so far away from recovery. Dude, the cross out you, Bob. You got problems. You are beyond self-help, Bob. That's how bad you are, dude. Bob, I can't believe a God had to die for your pile of nonsense and flaws. And and, and so the cross tells a positive person, Yo, Bob is nasty. Just saying. Just saying. But at the same time, at the same time, number two, the cross tells Bob hey Bob yo Bob yeah you Bob nasty Bob as my creation no 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 not just as my creation but as my 
image bearer. No, 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 no not just that. Not just that. Not just that. Um, yo, Bob, as my chosen adopted son, I was willing to plunk down all the wealth of the universe for you, Bob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, Bob. You worth it. Boom. Yo, Bob, my love is big, Bob. See, see, the cross tells an error-finding, flaw-finding person, negative person, I dare you, I dare you to find a more valuable draft pick than my man, Bob, because you won't be able to find one. I'm giving luxury pay to Bob. He's my heir. That's my Bob. That's my Bob. See, the cross does those two things. So where are you this morning? Right? So what do you need to hear? When you start thinking about people in our community, what do you, where do you need to be challenged? Right? If I know our community half well, it's probably that we need to believe that people are beautiful image bearers of God because they have been wrought by him and they have been bought by by him and they are valuable and beautiful and amazing and wondrous um, I, I, I need Adam Farley to create me a little you know a late night show jingle whenever I say like a C.S. Lewis quote like a little graphic splashes on the screen and you know announcer says and now time for a quote a quote a quote by C.S. Lewis Something like that. So here comes your C.S. Lewis quote. This is gorgeous. I, I have to read a chunk of it, uh, but but you need to follow along on the screen if that's if that's the way your mind works. Um, th this is this is a gorgeous quote. Um, here's C.S. Lewis in *The Weight of Glory*. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. See, that's why I quote the guy. 
Isn't that gorgeous? There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. Um, Do you see that this is thousands of miles beyond our culture of tolerance? Um, We're not trying to get to the point where I put up with you or or you put up with me. That is a a pretty flimsy and skimpy goal. Uh, Try using that with your spouse at night. Babe, I, I just want you to know I tolerated you today. Good night. Um, There are no ordinary people. If we would be strongly tempted to worship another person, seeing what God sees, that's not toleration. That's awe. That's respect. That's amazement. That's curiosity. That's wonder. That's joy. That's celebration. That's discovery. There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. This last five months, um, Melissa and I have been talking to each other a lot about racial issues. We've been reading books, we've been listening to podcasts, attending webinars and town halls and equity groups and neighbor conversations. Uh, And and, um, maybe someday, I I think maybe we'll share some of that. I, I think we are in a mode of learning and processing as it stands right now. Um, but we were kind of downloading on all of this stuff. We were kind of reflecting in, uh, on our time in um, the Southern Church, the church in the southeastern portion of the United States. And uh, and you know this, I know this, even the people that live there, they know that it is a hotbed of implicit, if not explicit, um, existing racism and segregation, especially during the hour of church time. So I asked her, I, I said, hey, when did we see, when we see the greatest expression of cultural and racial and socioeconomic diversity inside of a Southern church? Like, when, when did we see that? And so we were reflecting, we were thinking, and she thought about it, and she said, uh, Bryant. Yeah, yeah, I think it was Bryant. Now, I know you don't know Bryant. I know that. He was a kid with a lazy eye, a permanent limp, male pattern baldness at age 16, thick country drawl, right? He would often drive around town, no shirt on. He would dip tobacco and he would do the fine cut stuff and he'd always have it in his teeth and some would be on his lip and always dribbling out the side. And he had a tagline. He had a tagline. Bryant had a tagline. And he would say this when he would say goodbye to the group or people when he'd leave a place. And his tagline was this. Y'all be good. And if you can't be good, be good at it. And don't name it after me. Bryant died at age 19. And his funeral was in a big Baptist church. Now, to understand the South, um, 
even with funeral homes, you have your black-run funeral homes, and you have your white-run funeral homes, and never the twain shall meet. There are no signs enforcing this. It is a cultural understanding that there are black and white funeral homes. But Bryant's funeral was different. Um, the church was filled, filled with diversity, robustly full of every walk of life. Every space in that church was crammed. Underneath the piano, on the steps of the stage, people lined up outside. It was crammed. Why was that? Um, this young man, Bryant, was a curious person. But more than that, he refused to play a game of not associating with certain types of people. It, it didn't matter if it was race. It didn't matter if it was socioeconomic differences. It didn't even matter if uh, the people were moral outcasts for all of their bad behavior. He would seek to be around them and to know them. See, he himself was somewhat different. But he, but he refused to see people as to what their external price and value was. He paid no attention to it. There were no little people. There, everyone was valuable. There were no, no ordin, there were no ordinary people. And this is what it did something radical. It, it, it went across a social divide and a hot button issue that you would have never would have imagined it would have been healed, albeit briefly, by this person seeing other people as what? Valuable. Seeing them hold wonder and value and beauty while everybody else went by what was on the outside. See, God looks at the heart. We want to see what God sees. That is healing in and of itself. Seeing as God sees. Now, you know this can be developed. You know this can be developed. Um, first, we believe foundational truths about what the Bible says about people and about humanity. So, number one today, right? Um, every person is wondrous and beautiful image bearer. And two, every person is deeply broken and fractured and in need of healing beyond self-help. Beautiful, broken. But something can be developed if we believe those truths. So, so we can develop a God-shaped curiosity, right? We cognitively know with our hearts and our heads that people have wonders beneath them. There's discovery ahead. And then we intentionally develop the tools to line up with what was already true, right? Line up our practice, what was already true. So how do we shape godly curiosity? By asking good questions. I have a ton of material on this next part, and I even thought about making a different series, or, or maybe we can unpack some of this stuff at neighborhood groups, but... but I, I wanna I wanna ask um, how do we ask good questions to develop that um, godly curiosity? 
Um, one of my favorite poets, T.S. Eliot, he says, Oh, my soul, be prepared for the coming of the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. What are the questions that help us see what God sees? Immeasurable beauty and helpless brokenness. What are those questions? Um, in asking good questions, and people might be thinking, do I ask good questions even to my spouse? Yes, maybe especially to your spouse. Especially with people you're familiar with. Um, before we go into a, a curious conversation to ask these questions, I, I, I would I would give two encouragements. One is this, is be more curious than certain. I think a lot of us go into conversations kind of predicting or knowing what maybe the answers might even be, but what we want to do is we want to be more curious than certain about people. The, the second thing I'd say is this, is you want to you want to pray and you want to say, look, I can't see how you see, so help me see in this conversation. So those two things are big. You want to pray that prayer, I can't see, I want to see, and you want to be more curious than certain. So let's look at questions. How, how, how do you ask a good question. Um, there are seven of these, and I'm going to go really quickly, but I do think that they're helpful for us to to uh, run through and maybe even compare some of our conversational skills with our friends. Um, maybe review and tune this up. So how do you ask a good question? One, um, don't ask questions that require yes or no answers, right? I, I, I don't want to talk to my children and say, did you have a good day today, right? Because they will answer yes, monosyllabic response, and the conversation ends, it closes. So we don't wanna ask closed questions, usually yes or no questions. Uh, number two, number two, we want to ask questions that require reflection and expression. Reflection and expression. What do I mean by that? Well, we want to ask a question that necessitates someone to mull it over, consider it, think deeply on it. Um, that is a reflective question. Um, they may be able to answer it, but they may not be able to answer it. And this is, I would say something about that, is that we learn as much about people in what they can answer and in what they cannot answer. We wanna ask questions that require reflection and expression, and the expression is this, is we want them to pull the inner heart and to package it in words, right? It is an expression of the inner self. If you look at Jesus, and I have a bunch of these examples, we're gonna to have to do this later, but, but if you look at Jesus, his questions are as different and varied as the people that he encounters are different and varied. Really fascinating. He's pulling out the inner heart through good questions. The third thing, how do we ask good questions? We want to ask directed questions, right? What we want to do is guide them towards understanding their own heart. Um, so questions like this, what do you want here? What do you want here? What are you longing for here? What do you want to see happen here? Uh, sometimes this is revealed to a person when they're saying it out loud. 
uh, a directed question. Four, uh, this is a good question. You want to ask questions that focus, expand, or clarify. Uh, this is what I mean by focus, is sometimes if you're talking to someone, there is an issue so large, so big, you cannot possibly cover it. So if I were to ask someone about what it was like, the family dynamics growing up, that is a big, big issue. And so what I might want to do is I want to take a slice of that issue for the day, for the hour, for the time, for the coffee, and I want to ask them and say, would you tell me more about your relationship with your sister when you were in high school? Right? It, it, it takes a huge issue and it gives you depth into one slice of it. That's a question that focuses. Uh, the other thing is you want to ask questions that might expand. So um, it, that's simply like, just tell me more. I want to know more. Keep talking. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that. And, and I'm fascinated. Tell me more. Tell me more. Expand on what a person is saying. Um, the, the third type is a clarifying question. And um, what you want to do is you want to get you want to get behind the words people are using. And, and so you want to here's a clear an example of a clarifying question. Well, what did you mean when you said she seems to know your weakest spots? Like, what did you mean when you said that? I just, I want to know more. I want to clarify what you mean. Um, here's a fifth category, is you want to ask permission questions. Permission questions. Uh, let me give you some examples. Um, do you mind if I ask you about your mom? That's a permission question. Uh, or, or it's like this, you know, I have a hunch about something. Do you mind if I share it with you? That's a permission question. Another one is, um, would you let me share a pattern I've seen in all of our conversations together? You're asking permission. And when you ask permission, you're building trust because you're not foisting yourself on a person. They're allowing, they're granting it. The, the, the sixth thing to consider when talking about questions is you want to avoid why questions why questions. Uh, now, why would we do that, right? Don't we ask why questions all the time? Um, I, I, th I think they're not helpful if we're being curious about our fellow brothers and sisters. Uh, number one, I think that they're actually difficult to answer. Sometimes I do not know why I have done what I have done. They're difficult to answer. Um, sometimes they they force judgments or they're asking someone to have a judgment and it's beyond their current maturity to do so. So a why question is not very helpful often. Um, I would say this too, a lot of why questions are backward looking and they're not forward looking. Like, um, why did you do that? Why did you break that? Why did you go there? They're backward looking and they're not forward looking. Um, also, and you may have picked up on this, is they may accuse someone of something that they may or may not have done. There's a better way to go about instead of asking why questions, and, and let me give you some examples of those. Here's a better way. Um, what factors did you use when you made that decision? What factors? So it, it, it isn't singular, it's realizing that it might be very complex and nuanced. Uh, another example is, tell me more about the choices you made when you 
took the money. Right? Tell me more about the choices that were happening. That's much better than a why question. The, the seventh and final category is this, is you want to use non-judgmental or, or you don't want to use loaded questions. Uh, so let me give you an example. Um, um, you could ask a question like this. So what on earth was your pastor thinking when he blank? Right? That, that is a loaded question. A better way of maybe framing that question is, how are you feeling about what your pastor did? You see, you're not front-loading it with your own thoughts. Um, uh, here's another example. Let's say a, a, a parent is having a really particularly difficult season with an unruly child. And a loaded question would be this. Well, have you thought about spanking him? That's a, that's a loaded question uh, that already believes something. Uh, as opposed to that, here's a, here's a better way, is asking a question like this. Uh, what options do you think you have with your son right now? See, it, it's more open-ended. It's going to explore a lot more instead of centering in on your own opinion. So those are seven things to think about when at, talking about questions. Why? Because we want to develop godly curiosity with each other, among each other. So our teaching this morning, let me just summarize it. There are no ordinary people. Why? God's image is upon every human. Now, all people, because that's true, all people have to be discovered all over again. Right? This curiosity can be developed through really good questions. And that's a, that's a discipline, and that's a practice, and you will become better and better at it. Here's a one-sentence summary I said at the top of our time. A caring community has curiosity for one another because as image bearers of God, we all contain wonders others have yet to see. Let me pray for us that we develop that godly curiosity for one another. Would you pray with me? Our Father and my God, our God, our, our mutual Father, would you work in and among our community to be floored again by your stamp of beauty on each other's lives. May we see each other in newfound awe and respect. And you, may you develop by your spirit a genuine affection for each other. This can only happen through you. It cannot help. It cannot happen through our resolve or our self-help. It must happen through you. And so we ask for your help. And we ask it in your name alone. Amen.